Loxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We're the hosts of the Fierce Compassion podcast. In this episode of Fierce Compassion, we talk with award-winning beatboxer and Kenyan nonviolence educator, Mike Tinoco, who shares how Dr. King's work, nonviolent communication, and anti-racist theory has influenced his classroom practice. Hear Mike's personal stories that highlight the importance of self-compassion in the classroom and also in the experience of being a creator and what we share with others. Mike also discusses how to create space and welcome all of the students' background and identity. He speaks about the power of nonviolent intention for teachers in creating their classroom spaces and also their relationships with colleagues. We hear a lot of examples of ways to engage with students that both embody and teach nonviolence. Come join us. Okay, so Mike, you are on. One, two, three. Welcome to Fierce Compassion the podcast that explores the power of compassion in creating an anti-racist society. I'm Sarah Payton. And I'm Roxy Manning. And as you can tell from our awesome beginning, we are <laughs> delighted to have Mike Tinoco as a guest on our podcast. Mike Tinoco is a high school educator and nonviolence teacher from San Jose, California. His work draws primarily from Kingian nonviolence, nonviolent communication, and Aikido, with the aim of strengthening interconnectedness, healing together, and fighting for collective liberation. He is committed to working alongside his students, educators, and everyday people in creating a world that demands justice, centers love, and holds room for everyone to be part of the beloved community. Mike is the author of Heart at the Center, a book that invites teachers to practice a pedagogy of nonviolence which will be published in 2024. I have been fortunate to be an early reader of the book, and I can't wait for every teacher to get a copy of it so they can learn how important it is that we see our students as individuals, individuals who thrive when they are loved, seen, and valued, and are not just empty vessels to pour content into. So, Mike, welcome. Thank you both so much. I appreciate the um, lovely introduction and just really happy and excited to be here. Ah, we are so happy to have you too. What more would you like to add about your work and how you entered this field? Yeah, I'll back up a little bit and just share um, maybe a little bit of my journey toward writing this book. Um, mm -hmm. As a student myself, both in middle school and high school, there was a lot of woundedness and I didn't really know how to deal with that. I didn't have outlets to process it, let alone um, like write about it. And um, Long story short, when I uh, was in college, actually it wasn't, it wasn't until I was in graduate school that I was able to learn about theory and just developing language and, and, and learning other people's stories that I was able to um, make sense of my own experience. So there was a huge gap between like what I had endured and then really able to make sense of uh, what that the impact that it had had on me when I was younger. And um, 
as far as the connection to nonviolence, um, first few years of teaching high school, I was really committed to wanting to be like a social justice teacher. But I think that that aspiration was pretty abstract. I didn't quite know exactly like what that meant other than, you know, I want to create a space where my kids feel loved and um, I want to create a space that's humanizing, you know, like I, I had that, that was clear to me, but it wasn't until I want to say my third or fourth year teaching that I was really yearning to better understand how to center an ethic of love. Like I felt like I already um, built good relationships with my kids, but I was wanting to better articulate and have a map for like how to sustain that um, and to have a clearer articulation of the vision that I was kind of forming. And so that's when I started um, reading uh, really for the first time, some of Dr. King's writings about love, like beyond the I have a dream speech. And from there, I just was launched into this, this journey of, of wanting to learn more about nonviolence. Like it just, it, it just, uh, I, I learned so much and it clarified a lot of misunderstandings for me that I had had. So th that was almost 10 years ago. And in the time since, I've just been deeply, deeply studying nonviolence and drawing from different philosophies, um, studying different traditions. And um, it's really informed my practice as a teacher, which we'll get into more in this conversation, I'm sure. Um, and so over the years, like I've done workshops and, and been invited to visit um, teacher education classrooms in the, in the universities. And people have asked me like, well, where can we learn more? Where can we learn more? And, you know, I, I would direct folks to maybe some websites and readings and such. But um, last summer, I just sat down and started writing and I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be this book. I just was, there was something in me that just really wanted to write. And there was a little seed that really blossomed into this, this, this kind of tree of, of ideas. And so um, that's really where this book was born. Um, yeah. It's so exciting. I'm just sort of spellbound over here. I'm, I'm thinking, what happens in the classroom? How did Kingian nonviolence change your teaching? I'm just like, I've got all of these <laughs> sprouting questions here. But I'd like to begin by, since Roxy and I are focused on compassion and self-compassion, how do you define self-compassion? Yeah, I'd say one of the ways I think of self-compassion is holding myself with non-judgment really trying to just validate my experience, um, which is a, a newer or newish, like within maybe like past 10 years. <laughs> Cause like, you know, long, for the longest time when there was something that I would experience, something hurtful, something painful, like there was just immediately like a lot of self-judgment, um, a lot of shame. And I've really learned to not go there as a kind of default reaction. And so um, NDC has been absolutely um, integral to, to my being able to just like slow down, pause, identify the needs that are arising for me when something is really like charged or if I'm really upset about something. And, and um, there, I feel like there's a lot of strength that emerges from being able to give myself that self-compassion. And that's not to say that like I'm always in the right, right? Like sometimes I may do something that has like a, you know, negative impact on somebody and I can still have self-compassion for myself to recognize like, oh, okay, I did X, Y, Z because X, Y, Z, there were needs behind that. There's some self-compassion and what can I do to move forward, whether that's repair work or, 
maybe that's not always necessary. Um, yeah, and then and then I think the other piece there is is uh, part of holding self compassion is like not suppressing what is there, um, and that's still like a practice actually. Um, maybe later in this conversation, I can even share like in writing this book something that I was. I don't think I was truly cognizant that I was actually like not wanting it to surface, but then like allowing it to surface and writing about it actually was an act of self-compassion. No, share it now. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a child who's going to be turning four on August 1st and she is the light of my, my partner's life. And when my, my wife was pregnant, we found out early on that her due date was going to be um, the first day of school, which if you're a teacher it, and if you're someone like me who has generalized anxiety disorder, like that's not great. Like the timing just could not be worse. Um, so I, maybe, you know, I was like, what, what could I do as it was, it is what it is. And so um, long story short, like we had planned and, and I had anticipated that like, I was going to miss that at the very least a couple of weeks of school. Um, and it was just like, it was inducing all sorts of anxiety because like those first few weeks of the school year can really make or break a teacher's year. And I was really worried about coming back to like a mess and, and not being able to recover and then like taking stress home. But what ended up happening was um, my partner went into labor early and our child was uh, arrived early. And I, and, and, and this was uh, toward the end of my summer. So like I had some time with, with my kid and um I went back and forth between like, well, should I just be there at school? Like, I, I know I can run it, like it'll be, or should I take the time off? Ultimately, I decided to just be there um, and take time off at, at a later time. But then COVID happened and I never actually got to take leave. The piece for me that I think I wasn't fully conscious that I was actually suppressing was um, like being thinking about like sharing that because there's a lot of guilt I think I held on to with that. Um, a lot of judgment around like not actually taking leave um, and comparing myself to others who I who take leave, right? Or, or And so as I was writing about this for in one of my chapters, the chapter is called Slow Urgency, I found myself actually really going back in that moment and connecting with the needs behind my decision-making and holding like multiple truths that, being able to start off the school year with my kids and and um, knowing that I was able to like build those relationships with my students allowed me to be fully present at home with my partner and my child. And in some ways it helped me develop stronger boundaries. And so writing this was really helpful for me to get that clarity. And it, and um, yeah, and, and there was like a, a, a silver lining in that when the pandemic happened and, and you know, everything shut down, I got the closest thing that I think I would get to family leave, which is being at home with my child. Like we weren't yet doing the synchronous online learning. So it was like, maybe I'd post something once a week for my students and then the rest of the time I'm just with my kid and my partner. And so writing about that, I just was able to make sense of it more and then have more compassion for, for Mike four years ago at that time where there was, there were, there was layers to, to, to making the decision a, a complex one. Part of what I'm hearing you say, Mike, is how important understanding our needs and accepting them is part as part of self-compassion. That until you were able to fully understand the needs you were trying to meet, to be present for your students, to get 
both them and you, off on the right footing that would set them up for the year, and to hold that with a lot of care, that that was something beautiful and important to you, you weren't able to, like, relieve some of the sense of, I've done something wrong, I haven't been a good parent or a good husband, right? Right, no, absolutely, yeah. And and the other piece, I, 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 it's important for me to name, too, that thankfully um, we had help, uh, the help of my in-laws who were able to assist my partner, like, I don't know that I would have or could have done that otherwise, right? Um, so we, we had that and I'm thankful for, for our having that support system in place where I could even do that. And and my partner too was just like, she understood and, and, and was like, no, like, it's okay if, if that's what you gotta do. And we had spacious breaks in between. So thank you for naming that Roxy, like absolutely. Because um, it wasn't really a worry for me. Like when I was at home, like I was good. There's something that's also coming up for me as I heard you speak around like self-compassion and then also this like sense of judgment that you had to learn how to let go, how to let go of just beating yourself up whenever you did something you didn't like. And I can imagine that that shows up a lot in the classroom when we're working with young kids. Because I remember as a child myself, one of the ways that we learned about like how to be in the world, how to be a good person, was that we would be judged. And so we would start to internalize those self-judge, those judgments. And that was supposed to help motivate and guide our behavior. And I'm hearing, did you want to do something different in the classroom? You talked about the power of love. And I wonder if you can say a little bit about how you're defining love, because it's, you know, I'm imagining people are thinking of romantic love, and I know that's not what you mean. So say a little bit more about love and how you see that impacting what you do. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's kind of two ideas coming up for me at the moment in terms of like how I, I'm thinking of love. One of them is uh, Dr. King's um, notion of agape love, which he describes as, you know, an unconditional love for humanity. That's not really an emotion. It's not a sentiment, but it's, it's, it's grounded in action. So he, de- he defines it in a few ways. One, he says it's, it's genuine goodwill and it's disinterested in the sense that it doesn't seek anything in return. Like it's not conditional. And so as an educator, I think that's really important is to have that kind of unconditional love. Like I'm not going to just be uh, loving toward the kids who are easy to love. And then the kids who are, you know, difficult, like that's not something I uh, abide by. And then I'm also thinking about um, something similar that Bell Hook says uh, when she's talking about love. And um, there's this, quote that I appreciate that's from one of her books, Outlaw Culture, where she says that um, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move against domination, against oppression. The moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others. That action is the testimony of love as the practice of freedom. And what I really appreciate about that is she's talking about love as an action that's really moving us away from the things that inhibit love, the things that prevent love. So violence, oppression, injustice, and moving us toward a love that creates, a love that connects. um, And that helps us fulfill a deep longing to belong and to be in community. And so um, I really appreciate what Bell Hook says about love um, and Dr. King. And then, so those two um, kind of definitions are really helpful for me as an educator and the work that I'm doing with my students. In terms of just trying to build a classroom space where kids want to be there and they can um, they they can feel that they are part of creating something together, that they're not just you used earlier. I appreciate that phrase of like, we're, I'm not in the business of treating kids like empty receptacles um, to be filled, but that 
I want them to see themselves as part of creating this space with me that it's like, I can't create it by myself, nor do I want to, but we are co-holding um, this space where, where we can show up in our fullness. And one of the things I would just want to add to that um, to connect a couple of dots is it's really hard to do that. Um, it's not easy. And there's some students who just because of whatever it is that they've experienced or where they're at in their own journey, some of them like resist hard writing about themselves and sharing their stories. And the dot I'm connecting is to that idea of judgment. Cause for me as a teacher, like sometimes there's a lot of judgment. They're like, Oh man, like what should I do differently? Or what could I do differently? And, and, and sometimes like I can't meet all the kids needs or like, I can't, um, I'm not always able to sufficiently help them meet their own needs. Right. And so there's, there's sometimes judgment around that where it's like, I can, I, all I got is my best. And some kids are not ready or wanting to be part of the space in the way that I'm hoping they want to be all of the time. And you shared, I remember in reading the book that you shared a little bit about your life's journey and how you got to the place. And what I'm hearing you describe, the sense that some children are afraid to show up fully in the classroom because they have a fear of judgment is also something that I imagine you experienced given who you are as you were growing up. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about that, like where you started and your path to where you are now. Yeah, I. it's interesting. Like, I wanna say in elementary school, probably K through four, I enjoyed school. Like I didn't think of school as something that I, that was like a, a bore or that I dreaded. And I went to school in um, San Jose and then when I was 10, uh, my, my mom, stepdad and siblings and I moved to Oregon, which was a really difficult time for me. Like we, I, we weren't prepared. I should say I wasn't prepared for the culture shock. I say I because um, uh, I have a, a few half siblings and um, only my older sister and I have a, like a darker phenotype. We have brown skin. My other siblings um, are lighter. And, but there was no conversation around like how to um, prepare for this really white environment. Like I didn't even have the language to, to make sense of it. And so it was really uh, painful to just feel like a perpetual lack of belonging and uh, racially being racially profiled. Like I never experienced that in, in San Jose, like, cause it was very diverse, but um, yeah, I just remember like being followed around and it was really confusing being made fun of a lot having an ethnic ambiguity, I think lent itself to just people always asking me like, what are you, who are you? And, and I, I identify as a mixed race Latino, but I don't speak Spanish. So there's a lot of confusion around like my identity. And so when it came to just being in school, um, some of the wounds that were really starting to percolate, um, I want to say they just kind of ripped open. And so I started to engage in like a lot of uh, troubling behavior, like, shoplifting smoking and, and just hanging out with kids um who i think were also wounded um and but i was like the butt of jokes a lot so i was getting into a lot of trouble in oregon to the point where my mom really couldn't handle it anymore i mean she was i'm holding compassion for her because she had four other kids and but i was the one getting into all sorts of trouble and just getting suspended from school a lot so she sent me to live with my dad in california um which was really it was weird. It's like, I didn't want to leave, but I also wanted to be with my dad, but there was no 
I don't think he was fully aware of what I was experiencing internally. I don't think my mom was. I didn't really talk about it. They saw the exterior. They saw like the, the manifestations of the pain of, you know, the external behaviors. So in high school, I just was checked out. Um, I had plenty of teachers who I think were really, I, I want to say all my teachers were, were well-intended, hearts in the right place. And I had a few who like I got to know a little bit, but no one really like, checked in with me in a way where like they're like mike what's going on like what's your what's happening what's your story like i never ever ever like wrote about anything of what was going on there's like so much shame and so i was just like really angry and so to answer the second part of your question roxy about like so how how did i get to like where i was to where i am i remember sitting in english class one day i think it was my junior year and i actually really liked this teacher but he struggled to like manage the class. And, and I, I, that word manage is problematic, but he struggled with uh, holding the space together. Like kids were just off the walls. And I remember thinking one day I was sitting there, I was actually angry at like my peers who were just being little shits. And I was like, I wonder if, what if I were up there? And, and not to say that like I could fix it, but I just remember thinking like, is there another way that like English can be taught? I genuinely had this thought, like as someone who did not care about school, um, I thought that, and I think that just planted this seed that over time, just like barely, just like little by little would sprout. And then I just leaned and leaned further into tending to that little sprout, watering it over the years to the point where I was like, yeah, no, I'm going to go for it. Like, I'm going to give this teaching thing a shot because like, I don't know what else I want to do. And I had not even the slightest inkling that I, that the teacher I am now is what I envisioned, is what I thought back then, you know? Even when I started in, in graduate school in my teaching education program, like, no way. So it's really been a journey and I'm grateful for this path ha that has allowed me to um, heal and reconcile with people in my life who have caused me great pain and to just be the kind of educator that not only did I really need at that time, but that um, I think has continued to evolve and continues to want to grow and learn. And so, yeah, just some, some, some love for my, I'm feeling some love for myself. And, and I say this with humility, but just um, proud that like, I don't want to be static. I want to continue to grow and learn and evolve because the teacher I am 10 years from now, I, I hope I can say is like, continuing to learn and, and try different things. I don't want to be the same exactly. I imagine that this experience has given you a huge heart for the kids who are on the edge, the kids who are getting suspended all the time. It, what it, happens for you when you meet those kids now? Yeah, I, I, I definitely, I would say um, those kids gravitate toward me a lot. The ones who are typically checked out of school or, or the quote unquote troublemakers. Um, so I see myself a lot in them and I share my story with them. I'm very, very transparent with them about what, what it was like for me as a kid. And, and um, like the straight A kids too. Like that's what I really appreciate about our space, um, about my, my classes is there's like a just a, a broad um range of kids right i don't it's not just a class of 35 like hard students it's 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 a it's a beautiful mix and in some classes there is more of a concentration of like the, the more quote-unquote challenging kids but um i appreciate that 
even with that range, kids are like really excited to be there for the most part. Not everybody, not all the time, but um, <laughs> they learn to really celebrate each other's gifts and to lift each other up. And I'm just like in admiration of that because I did not experience that as a student. Like I just didn't, that wasn't a thing. It was like, I was the kind of young person who just talked smack because I was so wounded and so insecure. So being able to create a space where kids are not doing that, but they're actually being vulnerable. They're sharing their stories. They're willing to cry during occasions. They're like, mm-hmm. and they can trust that they'll be held. Like that is a beautiful thing to, to know that we can show up with our fullness and be held by others. Like for young people to do that, that's mm-hmm. beautiful. You know, one of the things you've shared is that in your classroom, kids are learning how to show up for each other. And I was really struck by that because I remember being the kind of student who was always looking for praise and recognition from the teachers in my life, from the adults, mm. not from my peers. Like that wasn't even a possibility for me. And I imagine that there's some very specific things that you're doing that help the kids see each other as resources in addition to you to like kind of turn to themselves and turn to each other. And I'm wondering, what are some of those things that you do? Yeah, it's like one of them, um, and this is like such a simple practice. It, it does require time, but it's time well worth it in my view. It's when students are sharing, say, like a poem or a, or a narrative or a part of a narrative, um, depending on the unit, I'll ask the kids uh, to write positive notes. So, um, and it, you know, so if, if we have one student sharing at a time, like after one person goes, I'll have some sentence starters and I'll, and I'll ask the rest of the class, like, okay, please take a moment, take your little scrap of paper and write one thing that shows them that you, um, just please write something from the heart. And so one of the sentence starters might say, I was moved by blank, or um, I really appreciate, or I admire how you blank. I can relate to blank. One of my favorite parts was blank because things like that. So that's one way. And it's just so cool to see kids collect their little stacks at the end because every student gets like 30 something of these. And um, I really, really appreciate it when kids go, like they really take their time. They'll they'll fill up an entire little piece of paper. And um, that means a lot. Um, and, um, and, and I've had so many students tell me, they're like, I hung on to mine the whole year. In some cases, like students will be like, I still have them from last year. Um, so that's really sweet. That's really sweet. Um, another thing that we do are community circles and these are, um, really beautiful. Um, uh, it's a beautiful way for us to, to, um, celebrate our space and, We generally do it at the beginning of the year, middle of the year, end of the year, sometimes more than that, where we sit in a circle and we just share out one person at a time something about our space that we appreciate. And that could be a person in the space. That could be something they've learned that they really want to lift up. That could be something that they've struggled with that maybe our space has helped them with um, or something valuable they've learned that they feel like they're going to take with them. And... um, those those circles are, are really special. I've got a question coming up as I hear you. And this is like a, maybe a little bit of a challenge that someone might have. So as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking like, this is all really sweet, right? We're talking about appreciations, about things that we're celebrating. 
And I know that I was that kind of kid who was so miserable that it always felt inauthentic to be like, oh, now I've got to share something positive when I'm suffering, you know, this didn't match where I was. And so what do you do to support those kids who are maybe not like yet finding that celebration in the space or aren't yet trusting um, even joy when it happens? What kind of practices do you do to hold the hard parts, like the parts that you described you had also? Right. Yeah. So, so there's a weekly um, kind of structure that I think lends itself to that. And that is, um, I mean, it's a really generic term. We, I just call it check-in. It used to be years ago, I was borrowing this practice from a friend of mine called Good Things, where we would start off the first day of class each week, not in every class every day, but the first class of the week with good things, where there's like, what's one good thing from the day? And, and I started to kind of recognize what you just said is like, uh, some kids are straight up saying like, I'm not having a good day or like, I'm not having a good week. And so, uh, yeah, so it's like, I don't want to force that. Like, I don't want for someone to feel pressured to like, well, think of something good anyway. So instead we just do a check-in um, and, and typically, like we have a default question, um, which is what's a rose or a thorn from your week that you would be willing to share? Um, other times it will be silly questions. Like if you could be any cartoon character, who would it be and why? Or like, what, uh, if you could be any plant, what, 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 uh, what are you feeling like today? But the rose or the thorn, it really lends itself to that, I think. And, and I tell the kids, like, if you don't feel like sharing something, that's okay too. But if there's something that you're willing, um, and I think that allows them to just be really honest and that it's okay if we're not having a good day. So that's every week. That's the start of, of our week. Um, and, um, I also have, uh, the kids have a list of needs and feelings in their notebook. And so there's times where we, I, you know, we'll just share like, how are we feeling? Or if they're doing a, um, a, a, a reflection at the end of the week where I'm just checking in to see how their week was something that they learned from class, something they have questions about. I'll also ask them just like emotionally, like, how are you doing? Um, are there any needs that aren't being met or, or any support you need? Um, so sometimes it's me like information gathering and other times it's the kids sharing out with each other or sharing out with the class. Your, um, you, what the questions Roxy's asking you and your answers are kind of bringing me back to, um, to two things. And well, I guess the first one is here you are having lived through an incredibly painful experience with identity in Oregon, which for goodness sake had sundown laws. I mean, and it has a terrible history of racism that continues to this day in terms of the composition of the state. Um, what, how do you support your kids in responding to racism or with larger struggles about the identity, about identity, like the one that you went through? Yeah, that, that is like, long-term work right there. And um, I try to think about opportunities throughout the year, like different units where we can do that. So for example, um, like if we're talking about systems of power or oppression, um, I'll try to find a text where we can see um, you know, impact of oppression, different eyes of oppression, institutional, interpersonal, internalized. So that kids have language to, to understand what it is. And then um, I'll try to, not I'll try to, I, 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 I create opportunities for short like journal prompts 
or discussion questions where kids can think about times where maybe they've experienced something similar to what we're reading um, or if they know someone who's experienced something like that. And, and I try to keep the question broad so that if the student either doesn't have an example for themselves, maybe they know someone or they've seen something um, or read about something, like trying to find some sort of connection. And, and then they always have choice about whatever, what to share, right? They don't have to share something. But I find that there is a lot of um, shared experience when it comes to like, you know, being undocumented or having undocumented families, like just that idea of living in fear or families having experienced racism. Um, uh, students who are part of the LGBTQAI plus spectrum, like students share how there's, yeah, you know, transphobia or, or homophobia in their own families, um, things like that. So that I that comes a little bit, I would say, uh, like maybe six, seven, eight weeks into the school year. Like I, I'm intentional about starting off easing in, yeah. you know, like maybe writing poetry or, or writing a narrative or doing some light, um, shorter texts where we're just kind of sharing, like celebrating joy, celebrating things we're passionate about, interested in before we get into like the heavier things. Um, yeah, and then like later in the school year, we may talk about uh, like patriarchy and feminism. Um, Nonviolence usually comes second semester because first semester is talking about like oppression and violence. Semester two is really about like responding to the problems that exist and solutions. Um, so yeah, that, that's like part of how I do that. I'm appreciating like one thing that you're naming, which feels like it's so under attack nowadays, which is that you have these explicit conversations about these topics. You bring in identity. Like I'm thinking about some of the laws that have been passed in states like Florida that says we don't get to talk about these kinds like patriarchy and history because it makes people feel bad. But what I'm hearing you say is it actually helps the kids feel seen about their experience and how important that is. Absolutely. And I, and I want to... Um... I want to um, bring in a, a student of mine who unsolicited handed me a letter at the end of, of a unit last year. We were reading the graphic novel March, which talks about um, very honestly about like the just the brutal violence of Jim Crow South. Um, and it focuses it's a trilogy and it's focusing on the lunch counter sit in movement in Nashville. And this student, um, she's, a, she's a white white student shared like it was painful for her to um read it in a sense because uh she was thinking about members of her own family who were very racist and like avowed racists and but she was thankful too because like through the discomfort of like that reckoning with her own familial experience she was able to um just find some uh, some compassion for for that the, the family members and she she told me she's like it was hard like i still like i don't agree with them and i'm so angry with them but like i'm i felt some softening there and so that was really powerful for me to to wow. hear that and um, do you think the softening came from the juxtaposition of kingian nonviolence with the with this powerful graphic novel march yeah i think it was like a collection of of uh, like a series of just discussions we've had as a class. Um, I like to bring in short video clips, like three to five minute clips of whatever, like a, um, something in the news or, or like a story where um, students are able to just see people like really humanizing themselves and others. And um, 
so yeah, I think those those definitely helped. And um, but it's really like it, it's powerful to see the kids talking amongst themselves about like, um, is it necessary to forgive, um, or you know, like, are people bigger than their worst deeds? You know, things like that. And yeah. so I, I think a lot of the 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 places that kids can get to and like new understandings or fuller understandings like it's really i appreciate it when it comes more from them Mm -hmm. and when they're driving that there's go ahead go ahead there's something really powerful for me about what you're saying especially with the story about the student that we want to be able to support kids and having the awareness of what's going on and to be agents of change themselves but you're doing it in a way that helps them feel compassion for people who are doing these really painful things rather than demonizing them and saying they're bad and that's where change comes. And I think this is really coming in from some of what Dr. King talks about with creating beloved community. And I wonder if you can share a bit about that, like your understanding of beloved community and how you try to weave it into the work that you're doing in the classroom. Yeah, one of the ways that... um... I think we practice beloved community in, in the classroom is by just trying to elevate our relationships to a to a height where we're holding everybody with care. And I I'm really clear and intentional with the kids about like that doesn't mean like we can't be angry, right? We have every right to be angry and upset about whatever it is that we're confronting and and so like one example of that is um, I, I've had my kids write what, what I call empathy letters where they're invited to write to someone who has caused them pain. And it doesn't have to be someone they know. I've had plenty of students who've wanted to write to Trump, for example, but, but oftentimes kids will write to someone in their own life. And so first and foremost, it's about connecting with their own experience. Like how were you impacted? What were you feeling and what needs were undermined from whatever that person said or did. And then the invitation is, okay, once you feel like connected with what was alive in you, what do you imagine was going on for that person? And and I'd say overwhelmingly, like the kids um, are willing to do that. For the kids who really, really, really struggle with that, then I'll check in one-on-one and see, if, like, is this even the right person to write to for this assignment? Like, maybe is there something else that maybe doesn't have as much intensity? Um, and I find, and I'm not exaggerating here, over and over and over again, kids will tell me, like, thank you. I feel like uh, I, I'm able to, like, let go a little bit or a lot. Or, like, I, I, I'm able to see that person a little bit differently now. Um, or, like, I'm not, I don't, I don't hate them anymore. Or, like, I, I just feel like I have a better understanding of, like, why they did what they did. And so, um, for me, like, the power of that is, one, we're not harboring the the kind of energy that can do harm to us we're not internalizing violence to ourselves by hanging on to like uh unchecked rage and resentment like i think rage and anger righteous rage and anger has a purpose um but i think when it's sustained it can be really damaging and so um that's part of the work that i try to do for myself and with my students and um yeah just connecting it to like what's happening broadly with these um legislation that's that's censoring topics and stuff like i just wish that um people the the 
policymakers can see like what so many teachers are doing isn't like trying to demonize other people. Like I, I, I believe that a lot of educators are trying to hold nuance and, and um, mm -hmm. it's just a shame that, that I feel like that's just kind of going ignored. Um, yeah. yeah, I think there's some heartbreak for me around the people who really just don't get that, right? That they're really stuck in this either or. Either I'm okay and you accept everything that's happened in the past or you're judging me and therefore I can't be with you. And I feel sad that there are people who are stuck in that binary. And I also just want to acknowledge that there are some people who are very intentional about kind of um, really fomenting this kind of judgmental um, crackdown on the work that people like you are doing because it furthers their political agenda. So I, I, there's something that's important to me to name that, that some of it is not mm -hmm. just the folks who don't see it, but folks who are making that choice intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel frustrated because it means people like you aren't getting to like work with students in a way that would really serve them and all of society. Right. I, I think it's important for me to name, like thankfully, at least in this moment in time, like, you know, in California, Bay Area, we don't have the kind of crackdown um, yet and hopefully we won't. But I, I feel, you know, like I, I'm, I'm gonna do what I gotta do. And even if there were those laws here, like I would still do what I gotta do, you know? Um, and, and, and that's not to cast judgment on teachers elsewhere who really are having to tiptoe carefully because I get it, right? But um, yeah, I just, I don't know how I could teach if I had to leave out like, pretty much everything I do. It sounds like everything you do is, is, is interwoven with the, with the consciousness. It would be like pulling a whole weed out, of, a whole plant out of a garden to, to, to take out any part of it. And that, that feels so important to me because Part of what I'm hearing you do is, and you know, in this podcast, we try to like really lift up people who are doing work that's advancing anti-racism ideals in a way that really includes compassion and self-understanding. And that's what I hear you're doing. And the fact that you say, even if the laws were here, I would keep doing what I'm doing is to me kind of like the embodiment of what we saw Dr. King and everyone do back then, right? Like if laws are unjust, why would I follow them? Mm. And I'm wondering, what would you want to say to your fellow teachers in those states that are having this kind of crackdown, that are having um, this kind of pushback to doing this kind of teaching in the kind of inclusive and transformative way that you are? First and foremost, uh, just bringing it full circle, like I want those teachers to have self-compassion. Um, and I've just been watching videos of and reading stories about just like heartbreaking anecdotes of educators just being um, really uh, disrespected and pushed out of the classroom. And in some cases, administrators too, and librarians. So just really wanting them to have some compassion for themselves and to just trust that, and to know that like they are not in the wrong here. Um, and I hope that they have um, people, uh, like a support system and hopefully other educators with whom they can um, collaborate and work and get and, and, and try to push back hard on some of these um, really unjust laws. Um, 
I, so for me, like I, I'm, I've been part of this, um, this group, we call ourselves critical friends, which is actually like a framework of the same name, critical friends. We've been meeting together, um, almost 10 years monthly. It's a, it's an inquiry type space where we provide each other with the support that we're not always getting in our schools. And, um, so like that kind of space, I can imagine if there were such laws on the books here in California, like I, that space would be um, like a lifeline, wow. you know, to just, to just one, have shared experience, to be able to know that like, I'm not alone in this experience. And two, like just finding ways to navigate um, the, the, storm, the storm, so to speak, and just to get whatever support that we're not receiving in our schools. Because a lot of the stories that I'm hearing, it's like teachers are feeling really isolated you know, the administrators, understandably, like, are maybe don't feel like there's much they can do. And so as a result of that, like the teachers don't feel supported. And um, so there's just a few thoughts that I have about that. Yeah. Are there any other significant forms of pushback that you've received in the Bay Area in California? Is that something that you get to work without? Or what kinds of things happen? Uh. I mean, certainly like California has its, there's regions here where, you know, like these topics uh, um, we're teaching about like race, racism, and LGBTQ issues is like, you know, hot button issues. But as far as like in my region, um, there has been some, by some colleagues, um, but for the most part, like there's a, there's a lot of support. Um, occasionally there'll be like a family member who, um, you know, has takes issue with their kid learning about like feminism, patriarchy, but that that's very infrequent. I'm also wondering, what are some ways that you would like to see? Because I, I think of a school as a system, right? And so you're there working with kids, people like my kids. I wish my kid had had you as a, as a teacher. But what would you like to see parents doing? Like, how can they be part of the system in a way that really contributes to it thriving? So all the parents who are listening right now, what do you say to them? Oh, gosh. So what a great question. Like the first thing that came to my mind were like these school board meetings, which have been like battleground sites of like just unnecessary um, like vitriol and, and aggression. And I'm, I'm speaking about the people who are like in advocating for these, these really hurtful uh, bans and such. I think one thing parents can do is like, if you can, if you're able to attend some of these board meetings, like please do and, and advocate vociferously for teaching about race and racism and gender identity and all these issues that, that are important. Um, and like, if there's something or multiple things that your child is learning that you really want to celebrate, like sending an email to the principal, um, or just making it known that you are in support of what the teacher is doing or teachers are doing. Um, those are a few thoughts that come to mind. I even want to kind of build on that and say, send it to the newsletter, right? To the newspapers mm -hmm. and have an op-ed because I think the folks who are really against a lot of these policies are really active. They're getting their voices out on media, on a whole bunch of different um, sources. And the folks who are in support of them tend to be quiet. So not just the principals, but... Let it, let it be known widely that you're in support of what's happening in the classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, if I could build off that for a minute, there, there's something uh, I wanted to just mention about um, uh, like 
thinking about practices, nonviolence practices. Um, I think oftentimes when we're thinking about like classroom work, um, it may it, we may think about like the curriculum itself, like that's a lot of where the work is done, and and it is, um, but in writing this book and in, in my practice the past few years, like I've really been trying to think about like a holistic approach to nonviolence. So the curriculum is one aspect of that, but then also just like how I relate to my students. So I've really shifted away from thinking of like classroom management to relational nurturing. And NVC has absolutely been a powerful paradigm shifting approach to being able to engage with kids, particularly in moments of conflict. Um, like that has just been, huge and also just like how we think about time how we our relationship with time like in schools it's so much grinding and it's very toxic just the non-stop pace and so i've been really intentional about slowing down letting go of teaching certain things which is hard um and not compromising you know like the 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 rigor and the standards and things like that but but giving myself permission even ourselves permission to slow down and um, so I write about that. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that, that like for me, the nonviolence, like it, it's, it's really trying to be an embodied approach to how we show up in the classroom um, as, as well as like how we're teaching. I'm feeling so moved hearing this because I know I've been in classrooms where people are teaching about nonviolence, right? And they've got a curriculum that's about, here's a lesson about what happened during the civil rights movement, for instance, but they don't live it. And so it feels like there's this disconnect between what I'm telling you is important and how I'm relating to you as a student. And I'm really appreciating this idea that it's, it's all part, it's all connected, and that we need to both show up, be relational, and teach the curriculum and that they reinforce each other. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Are there any other elements besides curriculum and being with the kids that 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 are part of your either the Kingian nonviolence or the nonviolent communication? Do you find yourself using either in other ways as well, or have we kind of covered the basis? We've covered most of it. I mean, like the first chapter of my book is is um, inviting teachers to really think about their own journey, their own story, and like what is their vision as teachers and like how do they articulate that vision toward their kids um and so yeah that first chapter is really kind of laying the groundwork chapters two the subsequent chapters so are really like classroom internal, practice like an internal Re- intention that becomes yes. the guiding light yes yes uh-huh. and and then the, the 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 last part of the book which i'm currently wrapping up is is actually beyond the classroom oh. and engaging with colleagues oh, and beautiful. thinking about um tending to the whole garden um, how do we navigate conflict with our colleagues and when there's a power differential? Mm. Um, and what are some ways in which we can draw from the wisdom of Ella Baker um, mm. and having um, leaders, uh, tapping into our own leadership where we don't have to rely on just the, the traditional school leaders, like still work with them, but like thinking of leadership in other ways. Uh-huh. And um, there's a lot of power in that. And so, um, yeah, that, that's a little bit of the scope of the book. Mm. I want to kind of, as we're beginning to come to a close, I want to go back to something you said, like in that first chapter about thinking about our identity and where we started this call, which was with your beatboxing. 
And mm. it feels like that was such an important part of your identity. And I could imagine in the classroom, there's also something powerful about the students seeing you do that if you do that in the classroom. So how do you like talk a little bit about that and like how teachers can bring in who they are into the classroom mm. as also like this kind of vulnerability that serves the students? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it back to that because uh, one of the things I forgot to say, and it's like so important, is uh, beatboxing like really saved me as a young person. Like that was the thing I found at my lowest point in high school. Like by accident, I just stumbled into it and I ran with it. And it it's what brought me into the classroom. Um, I'm not exaggerating with that. So uh, when I, yeah, my kids love it when I do it. I, I'd say, I'll, I'll say like I do it more so at the beginning of the year. And then subsequent to that, it's like whenever they ask, I'll do it. Um, so they definitely think it's like cool. Some may think it's weird, but they're, they, they, they think it's neat. Cause like, I don't think they have any other teacher who, who's done that, you know, who's been on TV, who's been in battles and, and all this stuff. So it's fun to share that with them. And, um, and whenever we can, I, I, I invite them to like, bring, bring the stuff that you like to do as well. Like, like last year uh, at, for our community circle, I had a student who's a guitar player and he brought his guitar and he played for us, you know? So we don't do showcases. Like maybe that's something I can think about in the future. We're like, you know, talent, talent show type thing, but um, absolutely. Like I want the kids like bring yourselves, bring it, bring what, what makes you alive, like bring that into this space, however you can. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for being with us. And thank you, thank you all of our you. listeners for being with us um, for this lovely exploration and look out for Mike's book coming out in 2024, Heart at the Center. And for those of you who would like to support the work Roxy and I are doing, please support this work in the world by going to our website, antiracistconversations.com. You'll learn how to purchase our new books, Roxy's How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations and the accompanying workbook that Roxy and I did, The Anti-Racist Heart. And you'll learn more about upcoming podcast guests and new classes. Thank you so much. Thank you.